0: Hello and thank you all for being here with us today. My name is Jeffrey Raskin and I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Lurie Hospital for Children and Assistant Professor of Neurological Surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. This podcast will explore the biology of pain and will be followed by podcast two titled Opioid Prescribing and Use in the Perioperative Period and podcast three, Alternative Therapies for Pain, Medical Marijuana and Mindfulness. An open and interactive webinar will then be moderated by faculty from these podcasts, where we can all discuss broadly the topic of the non-surgical management of pain. This is a jointly funded and conceptualized project from education committees of the North American Neuromodulation Society and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. I'm here with Dr. Mary Heinricher, faculty at Oregon Health and Science University since 1995. She is Professor and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Neurological Surgery at Oregon Health and Science University. She is also a professor in the Department of Behavioral Neuroscience and Associate Dean for Research in the School of Medicine. Dr. Heinricher, thank you for being here with us today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure.
0: When we first conceived of this podcast, I immediately reflected on the time when I was fortunate enough to have you as a peripheral mentor briefly during my research year at OHSU. The topic of this podcast is the biology of pain. Uh, I think that we should start with a definition. Uh, The audience is likely to predominantly be an international group of clinicians who treat pain and are familiar with the International Association for the Study of Pain or the IASP definition, which is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And pain is often further clinically subdivided to neuropathic, nociceptive, and mixed pain disorders. And as a researcher, do you see pain defined any differently than this?
1: Well, you know, um, that is a recently updated definition by the IASP, and they spent a lot of time working on that definition. And the reason it's so complicated is that pain is not always a direct reflection of tissue injury. And so they wanted to emphasize that pain is not injury and it reflects not only biological factors but psychological factors and social factors and cognitive factors as well. So I like that definition because it recognizes that pain is a sensory experience. It's not just injury, right? And I and I'm glad that they highlight that and they acknowledge that because that a lot of times pain that doesn't can't really be linked directly to injury is treated with some level of suspicion. Um, We wonder if there's that's really pain. Um, So I think I like that definition. Now the idea of nociceptive versus neuropathic, you know, I think that's something that's really important when you're focused on the peripheral nervous system and looking at. Sort of what's the driver, what's the initiating factor going into a particular pain state. Um, but it's not very useful for me um, and people who focus on brain mechanisms of pain. Uh, I used to teach medical students and I would try to explain the difference between nociceptive pain on the one hand and neuropathic pain on the other. and You know, in the end, the students would end up all confused, and I would end up all confused because they come together when you get into the into the central nervous system. If your trigger is an injury to the peripheral nerve or an injury to the tissue, it invokes a lot of the same processes in the dorsal horn and in the brain. And so, you know, you can see sensitization, you can see recruitment of brain circuits with neuropathic or nociceptive pain. So trying to make them very distinct from a theoretical point of view is not necessarily very helpful. Now, certainly from the point of view of treatment, it can be really important, but um, it's less useful for me as somebody who thinks about brain mechanisms. I think the key point that you wanna take home is that the brain is not a passive receiver of some signal related to injury. It constructs its own interpretation of any input Um, and it's going to interpret any input in the context of the situation, the behavioral challenges, the social challenges, what it means to you as an individual. Um, you know, if I, if I hurt my foot, you know, for me, that's not such a big deal. If I'm a you know, world famous soccer player who makes their living by kicking things with that foot, well, it means something different. So they're going to experience experience it somewhat differently. So I like, I think it's important to understand neuropathic versus nociceptive pain. I also like the idea of nociplastic pain. That's a new term and not everybody likes the term and I understand some of the pluses and minuses, but I think it's a great shorthand way to just realize that pain can be a reflection of what's going on in the brain and not necessarily a direct measure of tissue injury. So I like that that third category. And I also think we have to think about uh, the idea of high-impact pain. That's becoming an increasingly important concept. Many people have chronic pain, and, but not everyone is uh, impacted in the same way. And we wanna focus on the people that are really disabled by their chronic pain, where there's social impact, where they can't work, et cetera. Those are the people that tend to end up in trouble with opioids. So understanding why pain has high impact in some individuals and less impact in others is equally important.
0: No, that's interesting. This, this idea of high-impact pain, is, is this a new philosophy, or how, how, does, how do you come across this descriptor? I'm not familiar with this term.
1: So this is, yeah, it is a relatively new term, uh, and I think it's been led by, for example, that the National Institutes of Health, um, who looked at, if we just count the number of people that would report chronic pain, it's, it's huge. Um, But if we look at the subset of those people that, for whom pain is disabling, you know, that prevents them from doing what they want to do, that prevents them from working, those are the ones that I would say um, have the greatest clinical need, and they're also scientifically probably the most interesting. So understanding who those people are, figuring out if it's a way we can predict who's going to... um, Go down the road towards high-impact chronic pain, I think would be really valuable.
0: Yeah, I I agree, that's very interesting. And I think what I heard from you is that um, pain, and particularly maladaptive pain, is extremely complicated. Both are very complicated. One is normal and adaptive, and the other is is less adaptive and in some ways harmful. Um, And that from a peripheral perspective, there's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, in a research from a research perspective between the uh, peripheral nociceptive uh, inputs uh, to the central pain circuitry. Um, but they are sort of mediated by the, the four processes, I think that dogmatically everyone agrees on, which is transduction peripherally, and then transmission, modulation and perception. Um, and your work involving brainstem circuitry, I think bridges the gap between modulation and perception. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Um, Or it bridges the gap between, it's part of the gap between transmission and perception. right? We can have transmission of a signal and how it's perceived is going to depend on a lot of factors, including engagement of modulatory circuits.
0: Yeah. Um, when we conceptualize the biology of pain, it's such a humongous topic. Um, and I actually had to look up what biology meant <laughs> to make sure that we were uh, approximating the point of this talk. But I think if, if you contextualize the study of pain in like the scientific explanation of all the processes that underlie it, um, it really includes a lot of neurophysiology, neurochemistry. Um, but do you do you think that you're more interested in what you study with the RVM and the brainstem processing? That it's more neurophysiology of pain or the biology of pain, or do you make that distinction at all?
1: You know, uh, I almost had to look up biology myself to figure <laughs> out <laughs> what what the title of this uh, this podcast was about. You know, I honestly think I'm more interested in the psychology of pain, but I use neurophysiology, which is, you know, a readout of the activity of neurons to understand that psychology. So to me, I'm very much interested in, in sort of that translation from a nociceptive signal, which reflects tissue injury, to that perception and why it's so variable and so complicated. And to me, that's psychology. But anytime your sensory experience is different, to me, you have to explain that in terms of brain processes. So uh, I, I see them as inextricably linked.
0: Yeah, it's very, I mean, I think it's very interesting. And of course, this larger definition by the IASP is, uh, certainly, well-homed clinically, and when you see patients with really unexplainable pain syndromes, uh, you know, but still obviously they're in severe, uh, persistent or maladaptive pain. Um, we've talked a little bit about the RVM, uh, the rostroventromedial aspect of the uh, of the medulla, um, and you study it particularly in the rodent uh, population but is this a phylogenetically conserved area that underlies pain processing um, in humans? Is, it, is there clear analogy between what you study in rodents and in the human population?
1: You know, I think we're really lucky that within a, within a decade of the discovery of that pain modulating system in, in rats, and that was actually discovered, by the way, by a neurosurgery resident who, wow. was, who was supposed to be targeting an electrode to the hypothalamus and he missed by about a mile um, and, and this was in rats, he missed by about a mile and hit the periaqueductal gray. But he was smart enough to notice that when he stimulated through that electrode, the animals were more or less oblivious to things that should cause pain. So within 10 years of that discovery, they were putting electrodes into the periaqueductal gray in people and showed that it produced analgesia. I mean, the people could actually tell you what was going on. So uh, we know it actually produces analgesia. The system produces analgesia in humans, and it exists in humans as it does in rats. So I'm reasonably confident that it's relevant to the human experience.
0: I mean, I certainly uh, i i empathize with that neurosurgical resident because working in the short time that I did in the lab, I mean, I was all over the place in the put uh, in the posterior posture of, of the of the rat and and the mice were even harder. Um, so I certainly empathize with with missing uh, your very tiny targets, um, but good for that individual for uh, being smart enough to make a, a true discovery. Um, So I think that, I mean, this is some really impressive uh, work uh, that you've done and it's extremely technically challenging. And um, the work with the uh, DermSAP ablated cell models in the RVM, um, that is designed really to study normal pain processing, is that true?
1: Well, all right, so let me explain for those that don't know what DermSAP is, that's kind of jargony, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. So dermorphin saparin, dermorphin is a mu opioid agonist and saparin is a, a toxin. And when you couple those two together in a single molecule, what happens is that if you inject it into a specific brain region, any neuron that has a mu opioid receptor is going to internalize that toxin and be killed. So we know that there's a population of neurons in the rostroventral medial medulla that can facilitate pain. And they also have mu receptors. So we can inject dermorphin saparin into the rostroventral medial medulla and kill all the pain facilitating neurons. And you know, under basal conditions, normal conditions, you don't really need those neurons to get a basic pain experience, an acute transient pain experience. When they really get called into play to make pain worse is during potentiated pain states, so chronic pain um, or at least persistent pain. Uh, so I think the, the, those experiments are most relevant to chronic pain rather than acute pain. And it,
0: what model do you use for the chronic pain or the hyperalgesia or allodynia?
1: Well, we've used a variety. Uh, We have used uh, just inflammation. So you can cause a local inflammation in experimental animals. You can do a nerve injury, spinal nerve ligation or something like that. Uh, We've done headache models, uh, things like inflammation of the dura that was uh, an approach pioneered by Frank Perreca and his group at uh, Arizona. And we also look at things like um, stress, mild, intense stress. I think probably most people have heard of stress-induced analgesia.
0: Sure.
1: So intent, very intense stress can suppress pain. But you probably ask yourself, if I'm, I have a headache and I'm driving home from work and I get stuck on the freeway, it does not make my headache go away. It makes my headache worse.
0: Right.
1: Um, and it turns out uh, these pain-facilitating neurons are engaged by mild stress. So they can. there's a pathway, it's actually from the hypothalamus down to the midbrain, midbrain and medulla through which mild stress can make pain worse by facilitating projections through the dorsal horn. So we've looked at stress, we've looked at um, social influences on pain. So we can, if we uh, take a group of animals and put them in a chronic pain state, for example, with a little bit of inflammation, and then we house them with animals with no injury, their neighbors, will also become more sensitive to pain. And that's, again, mediated through these pain facilitating neurons in the rostral ventral medulla. So there's a lot of top-down influences uh, that can lead to prolonged pain, and we're very interested in those top-down influences.
0: That's very interesting how it touches on the context dependence of pain, uh, which you kind of alluded to earlier, but that's a very interesting experiment that sort of proves the point. Um, I wonder if you would comment, you've been doing this sort of research for, I don't want to date you, but a long time, (laughs) multiple decades. Um, And um, I wonder what you consider your biggest contribution to pain research to be.
1: So, I mean, if I step back and really look at my entire career, I'd have to say our demonstration that there are two distinct populations of neurons in the medulla one of which inhibits pain and can be engaged by opioids to produce analgesia. And the other of which facilitates pain and contributes to potentiated pain in chronic pain states, in the response to mild stress, et cetera. Um, So that, you know, if somebody had to write my, you know, sum up my career, that's probably what I'm most famous for. But, you know, I'm actually pretty excited about some recent work um, that we've been doing in the lab. Um, my really experienced and amazing technician who, you know, Melissa Martinson sure. was using a flashlight one day and she came in and told me that the pain facilitating neurons were activated by light. And I said, Oh, don't be silly. Of course they're not. And she's like, Mary, yes, they are. So I went down to, I kind of stomped down to the lab actually. And, um, and I turned on the flashlight and the cells responded immediately. And I was like, this is really, really strange. I don't get this. And then Melissa says to me, well, Mary, photophobia. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, migraine headache. We were studying migraine at that time. People with migraine are very sensitive to light. It made a lot of sense. So that was exciting. And then wow. I was talking to actually a clinician in the department who mentioned how many, that many people with chronic pain also have what they call multisensory hypersensitivity. They're sensitive to light. They could be sensitive to smells or loud noises, or even not very loud noises. And, you know, that is something that, for example, fibromyalgia, is very common to have multisensory hypersensitivity associated with the pain state. Well, one explanation for that is that pain is all in their head. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe pain is always all in your head and <laughs> it's okay. But we actually worked out the circuit through which light could activate the pain facilitating neurons in the brainstem, and that would make normal inputs walking around touching normal things in your environment, aversive or even frankly painful. And we now we're funded by, uh, we have funding from the Department of Defense. We're looking at photosensitivity in uh, mostly veterans who have had a traumatic brain injury uh, and looking at the association between photo, uh, photosensitivity and chronic pain. And they're heavily associated and then we're doing functional imaging in these some a subset of these participants to understand how light is processed differently um, in the individuals with chronic pain. And you might think, I mean, I would assume that what's going on there is that somehow the the visual system is more sensitive, right? And that there's just In general, a ramping up of the brain processing of sensory input, but that's not what's happening. If we look what's going on in the visual cortex, it's no different between the people with and without chronic pain. It's that light is activating areas like the insula and the cingulate cortex, parts of the brain we don't think of as visual, but we think of as important for pain and and emotionally salient stimuli. So there's very different brain circuits called into play by sensory input in these individuals with chronic pain.
0: That's extremely interesting and what a good population uh, to study. And I hope it derives a lot of benefit for them um, in the form of understanding and also eventually a clinical application.
1: Well, you know, a simple clinical application for some of these folks is, you know, maybe you could just lower the light in their work environment so they could work. But, you know, I think one of the things I really like about that, um, how we've, we've got into this field of study is that I think it emphasizes the value of collaboration between basic scientists and clinicians. If I hadn't run into somebody in the hall and started talking about central sensitization and pain. I didn't tell them about this light, by the way. They, they mentioned it to me, that uh-huh. they use light as an indicator of central sensitization in patients with chronic pain. And I was like, huh? And you know, I look in the literature and clinicians all know this, but they'd never quantified it. It had never really been quantified and published as, as you know, what percentage of individuals with chronic pain have photosensitivity and what's the threshold.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that is just so that's brings up another very interesting part of your career, which is the collaboration uh, that you've performed successfully dating back to UCSF with Dr. Nicholas Barbaro, a neurosurgeon uh, at UCSF at the time and um, and then throughout your career with different clinicians from the Department of Neurosurgery and OHSU. And I wonder if you've gained any insight in the importance of speaking a common language between clinician and scientists. Um, it seems like that's one question. And then the other one is, it seems like this was a chance encounter with a clinician in the hallway, but do you believe that um, intentional collaboration should be facilitated by like monthly lectureships or some other methodology?
1: You know, I believe they should. I think collaboration should be facilitated. And I think the hard problem is that everybody's busy. And it is very hard to get people to even once a quarter get together and talk about things that don't matter for them today as a long-term investment in the future. you know, now that I'm actually doing human research and I'm actually collaborating with clinicians, we have a more structured form of interaction. But the serendipity involved in the photosensitivity story, I think, tells you why it's at least worthwhile, you know, going to each other's meetings, making sure, you know, I go to faculty meeting in neurosurgery, not so much because I need to hear details about you know, how they are working on the call schedule or whatever, <laughs>
0: but, this,
1: but so I understand their life and what's in, you know, what the constraints are for them when they're trying to both do clinical care and do research.
0: Yeah, it is important to uh, develop some commonalities in order to, you know, move uh, forward with a, uh, with aligned goals. Um, so I think if that was a little bit of a sidebar, but I was only interested in your perspective on that. Um, I, getting back to sort of the biology of pain. Uh, uh, so, you know, we've obviously made some huge advances uh, over the last uh, few decades. And with respect to your career, how has our understanding of pain uh, changed um, com- now compared to the beginning of your career?
1: Well, one of the biggest changes has been in what's going on in the tra- at the transduction stage. You know, and I used to teach medical students that you have injury, and then somehow somehow the primary afferent nociceptor gets activated and responds. You know I used to say, and then there's magic, mm-hmm. and somehow injury gets translated into neuronal activity. Well, now we have all these, you know, there's multiple receptors like the trip channels that respond to, you know, intense heat and to capsaicin and, you know, those are getting better and better, better understood. Um, so that's been a huge change. But at the same time, you know, there used to be almost a an idea that you don't really need the brain for pain. Certainly that you didn't really maybe need the cortex for pain. And an appreciation of that and recognizing that, again, the brain is not a passive receiver, that the brain constructs pain out of its inputs. And and those are not just the actual injury input, but everything else that's going on. That's been a huge pain. And I think that's been good for thinking about how patients, how to work with patients about what's causing their pain Realizing it's just not a simple direct readout of injury. I think that's been a second big change in how we think about pain.
0: Right. Yeah, it's certainly um, the identifying the primary pain generator among uh, patients, myriad reasons to have pain is difficult to do. Um, and so it sounds like you're saying that um, our, our knowledge over time has uh, really been redefined from a purely bottom-up perspective, where pain comes from outside and then it just happens to us, um, to one where there are, there's recognition of significant top-down processes uh, underlying our perception of pain.
1: Yeah, you just said that better than I did, so yeah, that's for good.
0: <laughs> that's one thing I've said better than you in history of our lives. <laughs> um, so, with With respect to the treatment there's there's a significant disparity between you know our knowledge of molecules and physiologic mechanisms and pathophysiology and our ability to therapeutically treat different pain disorders. Um, do you see a particular part of the whole pathway you know the whole system that underlies pain that could be better targeted clinically?
1: You know, I look at that question a little differently. I think if we step back, you know, there's going to be different triggers, different facilitators, different modulators, and different people. And so it, the key question is going to be, what type of treatment fits what type of person? So that's why I—that's one of the exciting things about the multisensory. Hypersensitivity in the photosensitivity study is, for example, you might think that someone with uh, a high degree of photosensitivity might be better treated with drugs that act centrally. Duloxetine. Not that duloxetine mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a wonder drug, but right. treating them with dr- drugs that act centrally as opposed to surgery which may take out one peripheral driver, but probably is not going to be the optimum treatment for that person. So I think the real question is figuring out what is the best approach for for a given patient. And so we need to figure out what are the tools and the markers and the criteria we can use to make
0: those distinctions. Um, you, I think one of your many manuscripts, (laughs) uh, targeted, uh, the ablation of basically the nociceptive cellular network separate from the respiration network within the RVM. Mm -hmm. Um, do you see something like that evolving into a modern treatment?
1: So I guess what you're asking is, do we have the information we would need to separate influences on pain from influences on other autonomic parameters? Is that right. the I question? Mean,
0: mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, the RVM obviously is a you know integrative area, very complex, integrating you know autonomic and sensory motor capabilities of the entire body, and in there also are these pain networks, right? Um, mm-hmm. So to what extent can we tease those out maybe and get rid of them and salvage the rest of the underlying neural circuitry?
1: You know, that's that's gonna be a hard nut to crack um, because the brain, you know, it'd be really nice if there was one transmitter that we could target pharmacologically that, you know, was important for pain and a separate neurotransmitter that was important for respiration and yet another neurotransmitter that was important for, I don't know, reproductive behavior. Um, But from the point of view of the nervous system, neurotransmitters are just, they're just molecules. And if you've got a molecule that works like an opioid peptide, you're just gonna use it wherever you need it. And so it's really hard for drug treatments to selectively influence a specific function. So having said that, though, I think there's anatomical differentiation, and you know, the an awesome future for neurosurgery would be targ- targeted drug delivery mm-hmm. to specific brain regions. I mean, we're kind of getting there with some of the neuromodulation approaches, um, but I think if you could add pharmacology to that. Uh, it would increase the specificity and selectivity of those treatments. So that'll probably be the kind of thing we're looking at over the next 20 to 30 years.
0: Well, I hope I'm here for it. That sounds very interesting. And it's a lot easier to stereotactically target human brains than mouse brains. (laughs) I think I think one thing that would be extremely helpful clinically would be identifying some sort of biomarker for pain. Um, there would be a real clinical benefit to being able to identify primary pain generators more specifically and understand objective measures of even normal nociception. Um, I can imagine and maybe this is done in some places, I've just never seen it, but a multimodal assessment package, including like emotional encoding, bifacial feature extraction, innovative radiobiology using SPECT or PET, differences of the connectomes throughout the entire pathway in a specific patient, you know, controls versus patients with um, chronic pain uh, conditions. And then clinical information from algometers, you know, on pain generation, and uh, it sounds like your uh, recent grant that we just talked about in the VA population might have some of these components in it. Um, but what do you think about that? Developing a, a more objective assessment of pain in order to just understand the treatments a little bit better.
1: Well. You know, I think you're actually talking about two separate things there. So, one is an objective marker for pain. And when people ask me that, I always just laugh and say, you know, why don't you just ask the person? Or you could spend thousands of dollars doing, you know, functional imaging and PET. And if it doesn't match what they say, then what? so you might as well just ask them what they feel. And especially if you think, well, the, the neural, we know, we already know that the neural circuits that are engaged in an acute pain state are different from the circuits engaged in a chronic pain state. I mean, Vanya Epkaryan at Northwestern mm. has done a lot of very interesting work showing how sort of frontal cortical circuits, uh, that are engaged in pain change over the development of chronic back pain. Different circuits get engaged. So which biomarker are you going to have the biomarker for the acute back pain, the biomarker for the one month back pain, the biomarker for the six month back pain? to me that's that's not really gonna work. What, but what you're at, you also asked a somewhat separate question, which is, can we, by comprehensive phenotyping, get a better insight into what the drivers—and it's going to always be multiple drivers, I think—what right, right. the drivers are of the pain are in a given individual? And there's been, you know, I think people have been seeking that for a while now. Um, certainly, there's a lot more people doing comprehensive quantitative sensory testing. Um, to see, you know, at least what the peripheral drivers are. And I think you're right, more assessments of brain imaging to get on what the central components of the pain state are. Putting that all together, on average, is probably going to help us deliver better treatment. Um, But certainly, it's a current area of emphasis, both for I would say, you know, clinician scientists who are doing really nice quantitative work and for, you know, basic scientists working in animal models.
0: I think it also requires continued collaboration between uh, clinicians and scientists. And the next time I get a uh, flyer for some basic science talk on a molecule I've never heard of, I'm going to (laughs) go and listen to what they have to say.
1: Well, that would be Excellent.
0: Yeah, I'm glad. Um, I think we covered a lot of things. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to highlight in the last couple minutes?
1: Well, I just, you know, the thing I always, always want to highlight is that pain is always in your brain. You know, it can't be anywhere else. Um, if you feel it in your toe, that doesn't mean it's in your toe. The pain is actually in your brain. Mm-hmm. And that's, That's okay. Pain is always in your head.
0: Now that's profound actually. It may not be in your toe, it may be in your head and that's okay. Uh, That's, I like that. Well, we wish to thank all of our listeners and also the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and the North American Neuromodulation Society for this joint collaboration for innovative content. Uh, Dr. Heinrecker, thank you. taking the time to discuss the biology of pain, and thank you for your dedication and the impact your work has made in the field. We look forward to the next podcast, uh, scheduled soon to discuss opioid prescribing and use in the perioperative period, moderated by Dr. Yashir Ashragi with discussant Dr. Tracy Speed.